Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When George Moran pulled up to the garage on North Clark Street, he spotted an unwelcome but not altogether unexpected sight. Uniformed police officers were entering the building. It was an occupational hazard for Moran, who went by the street name Bugs, one of the many bootleggers in the country whose prominence and power had exploded with the so-called noble experiment of prohibition. Moran had arrived a smidgen late for an illicit delivery, and as such, was already a bit on edge. But when he spotted the cops, his late arrival seemed very lucky. Instead of waltzing in as planned, he held back, figuring he would wait out this temporary nuisance. He had no idea just how lucky he'd truly been. Within minutes, every one of Moran's seven men inside was slaughtered with a spray of bullets from Tommy guns. Those officers Moran had seen were really rival gang members in disguise, and the hit they carried out on February 14, 1929, dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre by an insatiable press, not only became one of the most infamous crimes of the Prohibition era, but it came to mark the beginning of the end for some of the most powerful criminals in American history. It also triggered the creation of America's first-ever crime laboratory, ushering in a new era of high-tech crime fighting. We've talked before in this series about the countless crimes born of prohibition, and chances are, even if this series lived to 100 seasons old, we'd still have more cases to discuss. But this one's special, because few crimes can be so directly linked to the end of prohibition as this one. The overall case, of course, began long before the date of the crime itself, and even long before prohibition became law of the land in January of 1920. Maine had passed its first prohibition laws in 1846, then went completely dry in 1851. Suffice it to say that things didn't end well in Maine, as in there were more saloons in the early 1900s than there had been when booze was outlawed. So it's tough to fathom in hindsight what about its dry spell made the rest of the country go, hmm, we should try that. But so it goes. Prohibition did not curb booze consumption, just the legal sale of alcohol. And while bootleggers prospered nationwide, as you might recall from the season two two-parter we did on Cincinnati's George Remus, Chicago in particular was an ideal breeding ground for not just bootleggers, but the gang wars that inevitably went with it. Chicago was the perfect place for vice to flourish and kind of a center of commerce in a way for illicit activity for the same reason Chicago grew to begin with. It was in the center of everything. This is historian Tim Samuelson talking in a History Channel documentary. 
You had perfect transportation. You had the lake. You had the river. You had the railroads. For people passing through, Chicago had something to offer for everybody. Perhaps it might be your last time to have a really good time in a long time. Chicago's growth was another accelerant, by the way. The city grew from fewer than 5,000 residents in 1840 to 2.7 million in 1920, growing in rank from 92nd to second in the nation in that 80-year span, according to Boston University data. The city had formed a police department in 1835, but it wasn't growing at remotely the same clip. In 1925, voters approved a referendum to raise $2.5 million in bonds to build a new central police station to help combat the influx of violence seen in the streets. But it took three years for that building to open on South State Street. Meanwhile, being a Chicago officer was an incredibly dangerous job. According to ChicagoPolice.org, more than 40% of the nearly 600 Chicago officers ever killed in the line of duty died between 1920 and 1939. Those who weren't at risk of being killed on the job were likely on the take. George Bugs Moran was a bootlegger and gangster who'd grown up as a childhood friend of a guy named Dion O'Banion, who in the first part of the 1920s led the North Side Gang, an Irish-Polish mob that controlled most of the booze in the city. O'Banion ran a flower shop as a front for his booze-smuggling operation. He was reportedly in his peaceful shop on November 10th, 1924, when three men walked into the shop wearing heavy overcoats. According to a Miami news story, O'Banion greeted them with a casual, Hello, boys, after which gunfire exploded from three revolvers. As the story said, quote, the workers in the flower shop ran out to see the three men rushing through the door into the street. They turned to the corner and saw Dion O'Banion lying in the bed of roses where he had plunged with three bullet wounds in his dead body, leaving a wide, dark stain on the floor. End quote. No one was arrested for the crime, but O'Banion's buddies didn't want an arrest anyway. They wanted blood. They believed that another gang, eventually known as the Chicago Outfit, was responsible. That gang was headed by Al Capone, who got the nickname Scarface after being razored from ear to mouth for hitting on the wrong guy's sister. Bugs Moran, whose day job was as a grocer, and Earl Weiss, a petty criminal nicknamed Jaime, took over the Northside gang after their friend's untimely retirement, and a full-blown war was afoot between Moran and Weiss's Northside gang and Capone's Southside outfit. The Northsiders believed that O'Banion was killed by John Scalise, an outfit member. With Moran and Weiss at the helm, the violence kept escalating. On September 20th, 1926, as Al Capone and his entourage ate lunch at the Hawthorne Hotel, a motorcade of 10 vehicles, the occupants armed with Thompson submachine guns, fired hundreds of rounds into the building. Amazingly, no one died, but Capone's folk were sure that the Northside gang was responsible, and so the next month, Jaime Weiss was gunned down on the street at age 28, leaving Moran alone to run the Northside. Surprisingly, this didn't quell the violence either. From a 1927 story by Arnie Swayback of The Daily Worker, quote, 
Every once in a while, Chicago is stirred by the heavy detonations from some outburst of its famous gang wars, from a pretended war of law and order upon the gangsters, or from some killings or bombings having alleged or actual union connections, that the gangs of the Chicago underworld at times carry on active warfare against one another with modern implements is a well-known fact. When the forces of law and order herald a new war upon the gangsters, it may safely be assumed in advance that some crooked politicians are either trying to put over a deal or else merely making a pretense of the legal machinery existing to suppress lawless elements, end quote. This isn't a hindsight piece, to be clear. This was published in 1927, a story that basically says, not only is gang violence rampant here, but if you hear someone talking about putting a stop to things, don't get your hopes up because they're probably just crooked Chicago politicians blowing hot wind. Get it? The Windy City? That's where the nickname came from. Anyway, from time to time, there were talks of alliances or at least temporary truces between Meringue's gang and the outfit. The alliances never lasted, however, often because criminals aren't the best at keeping their word. So even if Capone and Moran were content to bury the hatchet, that didn't mean that, say, Moran's sidekick, Giuseppe Joe Aieo, was in agreement. Aieo plotted several unsuccessful attempts to assassinate Capone, each of which failed, but he finally managed to kill one of Capone's right-hand men, a guy named Antonio Lombardo, with whom Aieo had once been a business partner before their relationship devolved into a deadly feud. Lombardo died September 7, 1928, when he and his bodyguard were gunned down at the intersections of Madison and Dearborn Streets. Then another Capone ally was killed a few months after that, from a simple history video. The Northside gang had been connected to the murders of Antonio the Scourge Lombardo on September 7, 1928, and Pascalino Pazzi Lolordo on January 8, 1929. They were presidents of the Union Siciliana and close associates of Scarface. Patsy's murder had been purported as a prelude to a planned assassination of Capone. This seems to have been the last straw for Capone, who'd apparently, not legally, but word on the street was, been responsible for the deaths of two Northside leaders at this point. He was, by all accounts, a tough character. He'd been born in January 1899 in Brooklyn, the fourth of nine kids to parents who had immigrated from Italy in 1893. This guy was in gangs even when he was a child, serving in two so-called kid gangs, bands of delinquent children who would go around town committing petty crimes like vandalism. Capone dropped out of school at 14 years old after he hit a teacher. In fairness, she was hitting him first for being rude, but teachers were allowed to do that back then and kids weren't supposed to hit back. Capone got expelled. At age 16, he was a member of the James Street Boys, run by a guy named Johnny Torrio, who would become Capone's mentor. Now, there are too many different gangs to keep all the names straight, but the important thing to understand is that Capone was loyal to Torrio to such an extent that he, Capone, moved with his wife and young child from New York to Chicago in 1919 to work for Torrio and possibly even assassinated Torrio's boss, Big Jim Colosimo, to pave the way for Torrio to take over. 
Weiss and Moran shot Torrio in 1925 in a failed assassination attempt, but while the murder failed, the whole ordeal helped land Torrio in prison, and it was during that prison stint that Torrio handed the reins of the outfit to Capone. And then, of course, Capone killed Weiss, probably at least in part for trying to kill Torrio. I mention all of this because the tit-for-tat between these gangs was wild. It's exhausting to research, honestly. This was why they sometimes flirted with truces that just never stuck. Finally, after Moran's murders of the Scourge and Patsy, Capone was apparently like, that's it, kill that guy, kill his gang, I'm done with this, period. And come February 1929, Capone's guys were ready to do just that. As the Moran-Capone war dragged on month after month, it's hard to fully explain just how useless the police were in Chicago. Sure, they conducted occasional raids and made some arrests here and there, but they were no real threat to the city's gangs. Generally, the police looked the other way so long as any violence committed was against other gang members. If it didn't spill into the neighborhoods, the cops really didn't care. That's why the gang leaders didn't even bother to hide. Pretty much everyone in Chicago knew that if they wanted to find Capone, he was probably at the Metropole Hotel where, as the History Channel put it, Liquor flowed. Prostitutes came and went. There was gambling around the clock. The Metropole, which has since been demolished, was a stunning building at the corner of 23rd Street and Michigan Boulevard, built in 1891 to cater to the rich and famous. Capone made his home on the fourth floor. This was so well known that in July of 1928, a wire story ran called How Scarface Al Capone Puts in Daily Hours. One of the subheads, a count of day with man living in constant fear of assassination. The story not only spelled out that he lived at Metropole, but he damn near gave his daily itinerary saying, quote, six days out of seven, Capone is back in the Metropole before dark. End quote. It really was a very highly visible location. Everyone knew he was here. This is Vula Saradakis, a curator at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, speaking in that History Channel documentary. And it really was a, a gutsy move on his part because it was like he was announcing to everyone, here I am and what are you going to do about it? Moran's whereabouts weren't as highly publicized in that I couldn't find a wire story alerting the world to them, but they also weren't some well-kept secret. Capone knew that Moran regularly used a garage on Clark Street as a hangout. Capone's men rented some rooms in a nearby building that gave them clear views of who was coming and going from that hangout. Now, there are some aspects of this case that have never been fully pinned down, and one of those matters is what precisely Moran's men were doing at the garage in early February 1929. As Lance Geiger, the history guy on YouTube, says, There are various stories as for why these men were meeting, with the most common being that they'd been offered a load of bootleg beer at a good price. That was likely a setup. Whatever the reason, on Valentine's Day, Capone's spies watched until they thought all of Moran's men, and surely Moran himself, were inside the building. But it so happened that Moran wasn't there yet. He was running a little late. One of his allies, though, who happened to be his brother-in-law, 
looked a lot like him, so it's long been speculated that Capone's men mistakenly thought he was inside the garage, too. Anyway, the plan involved four hitmen. Two came disguised as police officers and pretended to be conducting a raid. Moran, arriving late and spotting those two in uniform, wisely stayed behind, but wasn't all that worried because he had enough cops on the take that he probably thought he'd be able to make any charges go away with an easy bribe or two. That's how these raids usually worked. But the fake officers were a decoy to lull Moran's men into thinking this was just another raid. Meanwhile, two more of Capone's men came, these two dressed in more traditional mobster garb, wearing suits and ties and stuff, through the garage's front door on Clark Street. They trailed the fake officers, whose main job was to act like this was just another raid, no big deal, let's get this over with. Moran had seven men inside, and each one readily gave up their weapons to the bogus cops. As soon as they were unarmed, the fake police lined them up against a brick wall, their backs to the officers. The other two hitmen entered, sprayed the men standing against the wall with two Tommy guns, and killed several of the men instantly. Then the fake officers marched the two other hitmen outside as though those two were under arrest. It really was a clever ruse overall. These raids were common enough that the Moran guys weren't suspicious. They happily handed over their weapons to their executioners. And common enough that people in the neighborhood didn't think much about it when cops drove away with what appeared to be two arrested gang members. After a few minutes, though, it so happened that someone peeked inside the garage, saw the bloodied bodies of seven men on the garage floor, and called the police. Only one man survived long enough to answer any questions. From Simple History. The sole survivor of the massacre, Frank Gusenberg, a Moran gang enforcer, laid dying in hospital from 14 bullet wounds. When questioned about who did it, he replied, No one shot me, keeping the code of silence. Within a few hours, Frank was dead. He was the last of the seven to die, joining his enforcer brother, Pete Gusenberg, as well as Adam Heyer, John May, Al Weinshank, and James Clark. Those were known Moran associates. James Clark, who was also known as Albert Ketchelek, was in fact Moran's second-in-command and the brother-in-law I mentioned earlier. The seventh victim was an associate named Dr. Reinhardt H. Schwimmer, an optician-turned-gambler. Now, as hardcore as this slang sounds, and was, I think it's fair to say Capone was not expecting it to resonate as much as it ultimately did. He knew, of course, that police would want to solve it, which is presumably why he was nowhere near Chicago when it happened. Capone was in Florida with an airtight alibi. The only way anyone would link him to the hit was if one of his own guys turned on him, and, as you heard, even the last victim didn't give up any info on his own deathbed. That's how strong the no-snitch culture was. With Capone out of state, he was guaranteed to get away with whatever role he played in this hit. But this massacre went far beyond business as usual. It didn't just rile the police. It riled residents. Newspapers ran images of the dead bodies in their pages in the days after the shooting, and those pictures were downright horrifying. The Chicago Daily News ran a huge headline that read, Massacre 7 of Moran Gang, Two Subheads, Killing Scene Too Gruesome for Onlookers, 
And if victims are lined against wall, one volley kills all. Capone's outfit had meant for this hit to be a turning point in his war with Moran, but it was a turning point for far more than that. News of the massacre sparked a national outcry to take down the mob and put an end to prohibition, which was fueling gang violence across the country. That was from a video posted by the Mob Museum. The outfit's plan had been for the big hit to finally consolidate its power. That's not what happened. This was a wake-up call for the entire country. The noble experiment had failed. Society's ills hadn't been cured by the curbing of booze. If anything, they'd gotten worse. Chicago city leadership had to respond. While the Chicago Police Detectives Bureau started their investigation, the Cook County State's attorney, suspecting that the police may be involved, also started an independent investigation. Meanwhile, the Cook County coroner, Dr. Herman Bundesen, impaneled a blue ribbon commission to investigate the case. Thus, three different investigations were going at the same time. Up until this point, the mob murders had largely been glossed over, which is likely what Capone and his cronies had expected would happen this time around too. But actually, the opposite happened. This attack was so brazen and shocking that the pressure to solve it was unlike anything Chicago police had seen before, especially because the use of the uniformed decoy cops had implicated the police force itself, and the fact that some people found that feasible spoke to just how terrible the Chicago PD's reputation was. The department either had to stop the mob or accept defeat. As sure as Chicago police were that Al Capone was behind the St. Valentine's Day massacre, they didn't have proof. Capone had been in Florida and no one was willing to finger him as the slaying's mastermind. Forensic scientists were just beginning to study ballistics or the science of projectiles and firearms. So Coroner Bunsen set out to analyze the dozens of bullets that had lodged in and near the brick wall where the seven mobsters were gunned down. Bundesen had been careful. Before the bodies were taken to the morgue, Bundesen ordered that dozens of photographs be taken and that all shells, bullets, and bullet fragments be gathered and preserved. They were carefully cataloged and placed in sealed envelopes to protect the evidence. Bundesen then tapped a scientist named Calvin Goddard for help. Goddard, who'd been born in 1891, had grown up fascinated by firearms, which, as he reached adulthood, merged with his scientific bent to lead to huge advancements in the field of firearms examination. Working with other scientists, he helped create a comprehensive firearms database and also developed a microscope that allowed him to examine the characteristics left by furling, firing pins, extractors, and breech faces on two bullets or cartridge cases at one time. And this is what you've seen 5,000 times on Forensic Files or other crime shows when a scientist peers through a microscope to compare grooves and lands. Goddard had recently made headlines for forming the Bureau of Forensic Ballistics, which, in 1926, had been tapped by the state of Massachusetts to review an appeal from two murder convicts. Using the techniques that he'd helped fine-tune, he compared the firearm's evidence, the results of which were cited in upholding the conviction. Now, Bunsen asked for Goddard to compare the ballistics in the Valentine's Massacre with weapons retrieved from the Chicago police to see if any matched up. 
Goddard said none did, which went a long way in at least assuring the public that officers had been impersonated, not actually involved, in the shooting. Suspicion early on was split between two gangs, Capone's, of course, because of its bloody history with the Moran gang, and also another gang out of Detroit known as the Purple Gang, which will sooner than later be featured in its own episode. That gang was Detroit's most notorious organized crime operation in the 1920s and 30s. It was made up of immigrants from an area on the Lower East Side known as Little Jerusalem. Like the Chicago gangs, the Purples dabbled in the resale of smuggled alcohol. They were loosely aligned with Capone, supplying the outfit with old log cabin whiskey hijacked off the Detroit River. It's possible that a few members of the Purple Gang did help Capone's crew in the slaying, but if so, historians generally agree their role was peripheral, probably as lookouts helping to case things out beforehand. Regardless, that the Purple Gang was initially suspected matters because it diverted attention away from Capone's gang long enough for the latter to destroy some important evidence that would have been handy if anyone was to face trial in the massacre. For example, eight days after Valentine's Day, on February 22, a 1927 Cadillac sedan, disassembled and partially burnt, was found in a garage fire on Wood Street. This was the car used by the murderers. The engine number was traced to a Michigan Avenue dealer who had sold the car to a James Morton of Los Angeles, while the burned garage was rented by someone named Frank Rogers. These were eventually deemed aliases, but some cross-referencing of addresses led investigators to someone with ties to both the outfit and the Purple Gang. After some alibi checking, police began to form a theory. They believed that a guy called Jack Machine Gun McGurn was the shooter in the case. Born Vincenzo Gibaldi, the Italian immigrant took on the name McGurn as a young boxer in Chicago because fighters with Irish names got better odds in matches. Standing about five foot two, he was a featherweight, described as pale face with black eyes. He was rough and shrewd and got into enough scrapes that his strength suffered. So he shifted from making money in the ring to working as a hired man on the streets. One of the first times I found him mentioned in connection with the Valentine's Massacre was in a story that ran days after the shooting when he was misidentified as Dan McGurn and a wire story calling him a person of interest that police wanted to question. Other newspapers not only got his name right, but ran his photo on the front page under the words, Stop This Man. Police's theory was that McGurn had started planning the hit weeks in advance, taking his time to go through the details. He knew that Moran's men, the Gusenberg brothers especially, would never give up their weapons if they thought they were in danger, which is what sparked the idea of disguising some of the hitmen in police uniforms and lining them against the wall like they were about to be patted down for any more weapons. That was standard procedure for cops, after all. Police believe that the day before the shooting, McGurn had a local booze hijacker contact Bugs Moran saying he had a shipment of Old Log Cabin Whiskey, the same brand the Purple Gang peddled, for the low, low price of $57 per case. After the massacre, Chicago police asked for federal intervention in the hijacking and gang warfare, but the White House declined to get involved unless state officials, not just city ones, asked for help, you know, jurisdiction and all. 
Nearly two weeks after the slayings, McGurn was finally arrested and charged with the murders, prompting newspapers to declare the ordeal officially solved. A state's attorney representative told the Associated Press that there was no question about it. The crime was solved. McGurn had been viewed by witnesses who declared he was one of the killers. That rep, David Stansbury, also said, quote, I also know the motive and have known it for two days, end quote. Good for him. But self-assured quotes in the newspapers be damned, McGurn had an alibi up his sleeve. Her name was Louise Rolfe, and she vouched that McGurn was with her all day Valentine's Day and thus couldn't have been among the killers. She was a sassy, well-dressed flapper who would go down in history as McGurn's, quote, baby blonde alibi. Over the years, some 22 people would be arrested in connection with the massacre, but none would face trial. Finally, after one embarrassing defeat after another, feds would finally get involved with an IRS investigation into Capone and the dispatch of Bureau of Prohibition agent Elliot Ness to the city. Ness, who was still in his 20s, had started working the Prohibition beat a few years earlier, but shifted his focus to Chicago, and thus to Capone, in the wake of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Ness had formed his famous group of so-called untouchables, a posse of agents known for their refusal to entertain bribes, which is what had kept local police at bay for so long. Ness had gained fame for some creative busts, like the time in 1927 when he and a colleague pretended to be Kentucky colonels who owned some racing stables and had come to Chicago to supposedly watch races and then actually joined some 15 agents in raiding four bootlegging establishments simultaneously. While Ness was never unleashed to tackle the Valentine's Massacre directly, he became a huge pain in Capone's ass, costing the mob millions and eventually ensuring Capone was convicted of several counts of tax evasion. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison and $50,000 in fines and court costs. You might remember that while he was awaiting sentencing, Capone had offered to help aviator Charles Lindbergh search for his kidnapped son if only Lindy could help him avoid that prison stint. Lindbergh passed and Capone entered the Atlanta Penitentiary in May 1932. Two years later, he was transferred to the then-new Alcatraz facility. In November of 1939, suffering from the general deterioration of paresis, a late stage of syphilis, he was released and sent to a Baltimore hospital. Later, he retired to his Florida estate, where he died from cardiac arrest in 1947, a powerless recluse. The feds did take a couple of stabs at solving the massacre over the years, but it just never panned out from a simple history. The FBI arrested a small-time criminal called Byron Bolton in a shootout. Under interrogation, he tried to turn informant and claimed he knew what happened at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but his story was full of inconsistencies compared to the known facts. The FBI, therefore, took no further action, and the massacre is still classed as an unsolved crime. That 1935 shootout, by the way, involved the Barker Carpus Gang, which is a case we discussed in Season 1. Feel free to go back and check that out. Bolton's first name is sometimes Byron, sometimes Brian, in contemporary news sources, by the way. 
Regardless, he was known to be a machine gunner for the Barker Carpus gang who ultimately testified against that crew and tried to further save his hide at the time by supposedly offering what he knew about the Valentine's Massacre. I don't know if the supposed inconsistencies mentioned above were real inconsistencies or just details that the feds had decided they already knew and thus they chose not to believe him, but either way, Bolton also died a recluse in 2018, taking with him whatever he knew. Bugs Moran was declared one of the luckiest men after his narrow escape from death in 1929, but his power began to evaporate soon after and then disappeared altogether when prohibition was repealed. He wasn't one to forgive and forget, however, and is generally credited with the retribution killing of Jack Machine Gun McGurn, who died seven years and a few hours after the massacre. As the Associated Press reported on February 15, 1936, quote, Dapper Machine Gun Jack McGurn, former Capone gangster, today received a comic valentine and two shots in the back of the head, killing him in much the same fashion as seven George Bugs Moran gangsters died seven years ago in the bloody St. Valentine's Day massacre of which he was accused. The gangster's death came with the same dramatic suddenness as did the massacre of the Moran men. While McGurn and two unidentified companions sat in a second-floor bowling alley at 805 Milwaukee Avenue on the near northwest side awaiting their turn, two men entered the place and ordered, Stick em up. Stand where you are. McGurn, his back to the men, stood erect. Without another word, the pair opened fire with 45 caliber pistols. End quote. As for Moran, he drifted into petty crimes, ending his days in prison for bank robberies before dying of lung cancer in 1957. Prohibition was officially repealed December 5, 1933, and when that era of American history is revisited, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is invariably cited as proof that the banning of booze brought unnecessary gang violence to otherwise safe neighborhoods. Because while crime was rampant during this era, little can sum up just how ugly everything got better than the story of seven unarmed men executed against a brick wall by a barrage of machine gun bullets. To research this story, I got help from Amanda Rossman, whose name you'll hear more often. My former reporting partner on my firstborn podcast, Accused, is going to help me flesh out these stories for Crimes of the Centuries, so everyone give a hearty hello to Amanda. Hi, Amanda! We mostly relied on contemporary news accounts, though documentaries by the History Channel, Simple History, and the Mob Museum were also helpful. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs>